Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today is our follow-up in our short little series about iconic country music. Our first episode was about the recordings that you should definitely go check out if you haven't heard already. And today we will be talking about iconic country music performers. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another very exciting episode of the Music History Project. You know, last time we got together, we recorded a very fun episode about the iconic recordings in country music. And at the end, we all looked around and said, we've got all this great content and we're super excited about all these great country artists that we have also interviewed. Why not let it roll into another episode? So here we are uh, talking about some iconic performers in country music. Definitely a lot of favorites on this podcast. Almost all of them are members of the Country Music Hall of Fame. So, you know, no big deal just some heavy hitters going on. <laughs> uh, so we're going to be listening to Kitty Wells and Johnny Wright, Charlie Pride, Marty Stewart, Ricky Skaggs, and Whispering Bill Anderson. And first up, we're going to hear from someone who's known as the first lady of country music, Kitty Wells, and her husband, Johnny Wright. They're going to be talking about what music was like growing up in Tennessee when they were young and their amazing career in country music. Johnny, can you can we start with you, sir? Where did you grow up? I hadn't yet. That's the best answer I ever got. That's the best answer I ever got. I was born in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, about uh, fifteen mile from Nashville, born right on, lived in a big old log house, and uh, I, had, I had to sleep upstairs, you know, that tin roof on the house, <laughs> and uh, you look, if it snowed, then you had put something in between the rafters, you know, to keep the wind blowing it in on, but I'm a regular old country boy. Used to pick cotton and roast, roasting ears and all that corn stuff like that. Dig potatoes. Wow. Was there a music in your home? Did your parents play music? My my father played a banjo, hmm. and uh, my grandfather, who my mother's dad, played fiddle. So we had a fiddle and a guitar in the band and a banjo. <laughs> But I was born 90 years ago. Is that right? Down on Cumberland River. If you, are you familiar with uh, Nashville? Yes, sir. 
like Johnny, anybody Johnny Cash house is? Yes. I was born on the opposite side of the river, just almost directly. That's where I was born and raised over there for, oh, uh, we moved to town, I think it was about 20, 27, something like that. Huh. And I, I got a job at Davis Cabinet Company, working on cabinets, building, well, installing them, put them all together. I worked over there till I met Kitty. <laughs> then we got we got married and, and we moved to North Nashville over there with a cotton mill. So we had had a a good start. Mm. I wish it had ended that way. <laughs> Kitty, can I ask you a little bit about your upbringing? Well, I was born and raised right here in Nashville, and uh, we I went to Howard School, Lipscomb School here in Nashville, and uh, when I was about four years old, we moved to the country for about two or three years, down around McEwen, Tennessee, we lived there, and uh, then we moved back to Nashville, and uh, we continued to live here. My father was a railroad man. He was brakeman on the Tennessee Central. Mm. And uh, so we, I was brought up here and up until, well, I met Johnny. Um, his sister moved next door to us when I was about 16 years old. That's when we first met. And uh, he brought his parents over to visit her on, around Christmas time one year. And she told him about a girl lived next door that played the guitar and sang, so he said, well, have her to come over and sing some for us. <laughs> so I was just just beginning, you know, to to learn to play the guitar. Of course, my dad played the guitar, and I, I guess I kindly inherited that from him. Mm. And uh, so uh, I sang some songs for him, and then later on, uh, we... We started dating, and uh, I think we went together two years, and we got married. <clears throat> Do you remember um, the, your first guitar? Was it your dad's guitar that you? Yes, he, he, after I learned to play the guitar, I learned a few chords on the guitar. My girlfriend, one of my best girlfriends, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, was going with a boy. Uh, Herschel Hearn, and he showed me my first chords on the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I I learned how to kind of chord the guitar a little bit and was sang. Then uh, I sang around at prayer meetings and things like that when I first started singing. Wow. So Johnny, what was your first impression of this young girl? Well, uh, I thought she was about the prettiest girl I ever. <laughs> so they didn't have any Mount Julius compare. <laughs> so, but uh, I always thought she was real pretty. My brother-in-law and I used to work on Jack Anglin. We worked together, and, and he married my sister. So we, uh, Jack and I, had a lot of good records. You know, he got killed on the way to 
one is one patch clan got killed. Jack, my brother-in-law, got killed the next next day. One, but going to the funeral, right? going yeah. to the funeral. Yeah. So then after that, I didn't try to get anybody to sing because I knew we could, our son Bobby sang harmony and Kitty fall in there too. We have a we had a steel guitar player that played steel and he also sang. So we had quartet, you know, he could get the bass part. Hmm. Uh, Jack and I had a lot of tunes like Oh Baby Mine, I Get So Lonely and that this bass man he'd come up, Oh baby mine. <laughs> but he could he could put it on. But we had we we traveled everywhere over in Europe. I, I, we played uh, Germany, Italy, and France. All all that uh, day after the war ended, you know. Kitty was on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we worked worked all the bases over there, mm. and uh, worked in, in England and all all around through there. I enjoyed that, you know. Being in the music businesses, we've got to travel lots of places we wouldn't have gotten to mm. had we not been in the music businesses. So it's it's really been good to us, and we've enjoyed it. Made a lot of fans and a lot of friends down through the years. Mm -hmm. I'll say. One of the things that uh, is really important for for our library is um, how unique it was uh, the way you played the guitar. Actually, that's true for both of you. You mm -hmm. both had developed your own style. Um, Johnny, did you have your own um, tuning? Did you tune the guitar differently, or no? Tune this like any guitar. Mm -hmm. We had that back lick. We called it a rumba beat. I don't know. It's, well, it's a Latin beat. It's what it did. But we, Jack and I. We like to do fast songs, like down south in New Orleans, yeah. and uh, then we had a lot of sad ones too, real sad. <laughs> Ashes of Love. Ashes of Love, that was good. That's ours. One, uh, I'm trying to think of something odd. <laughs> About when did you start recording? Was that with Jack? Yeah. That your first recordings? Uh -huh. We went to uh, ten, what's the name of the town, Miss Tennessee? Nash. That's first recordings we made for for company. Cause what was the name of that place? But anyway, anyway we went to Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, recorded session and you recorded one there too so we all mm. had to drive down there and cut the right we did uh i think jack and i did 12 12 sides and they they didn't uh, do anything it was on a 
Apollo records. So they never did get off the ground. I don't know whether they got them out of the house or not. We <laughs> <laughs> went to Cincinnati and recorded some up there, too. Yeah. In New York. So did you get the bug for recording even though they weren't big hits? Yeah, well, after after we got off of that label, we, we cut, Jack and I done a lot of hits, and then I went on by myself and with Kitty helping me out, I had out uh, several songs that, that went number one. Mm. Hello Vietnam, that, that went right to the top. And just several of them war songs. Back during the war, that's what people love to hear. And I had good luck with them. And Kitty, you when when you first started recording it, you were quite revolutionary in, in, uh, during that period of time. You, an awful lot of important hits that really paved the way for not just women, but even men in terms of getting the contracts that they did and, and touring the way they did. Do you sort of feel like you were a pioneer? <laughs> I guess you say I was kind of a pioneer. I was one of the, well, I was lucky to get a, a song that was answered to what? one Hank Thompson had out. He had out Wild Side of Life, and, and uh, J.D. Miller, boy from Louisiana, wrote the answer to it. It wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angels. Hmm. And uh, I was lucky to get that song and record it. But I had already recorded eight sides on RCA when we, when we were in Shreveport. So I didn't think this I, this would do any good either when... Uh, Paul Cohen, who was the A&R man with Decca, he saw Johnny and Jack at Ernest Tubb Record Shop program on Saturday night, and he told him, he said, I've got this song I'd like for you to take and listen to, and, and maybe Kitty will, will record it. So he brought the song home, and I said, well, because when we returned from Shreveport, I said I was just going to stay at home and stay with the children and raise family. <coughs> So I told him, I said, well, we'll record it if you want me to. I said, at least we'll get Union Scales out of it. <laughs> and I'm never dreaming it would make a hit. <laughs> Boy, and So after that one, you know, before that, they hadn't written too many songs for, for women to sing. And uh, so after I had that hit with... It wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angels. They everybody started writing songs for the women. And of course, after I hit, well, Capitol Records got Gene Shepard, Wanda Jackson on the label, and we started going. A lot of women started getting record contracts. So I was very fortunate to get get that song. It was. I never dreamed that it would make a hit, but it sure sure surprised me. Hmm. Did it surprise you, Johnny? Yeah, it really did because she hadn't had a hit, and, and uh, <clears throat> Jack and I had been having hit after hit, you know. And then she come along and, and did this song, and it, it surprised me. I was glad she made a hit because I was getting tired of working 
Let her do some work. I had a short retirement. <laughs> short retirement. <laughs> <laughs> then you wouldn't let her out the bus after right. that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, were, we ran off and left her one night. Where, where was it? We, in Minnesota. Minnesota. We went she in. Remembers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she did. Didn't take her much. In Minnesota, we went in and fueled up and while we was putting the fuel in. You went, and, went to a music store and everybody got off and went in the music store and uh, the drugstore next door, so I thought I'd get off and get some Kleenex stuff for the bus. So when they come out, I didn't think they'd be the through that quick. <laughs> I come out and saw the bus was gone. I went around and saw it going around down the street. So I just went back and I sat down. There's a bench on outside. I sat down on that. I said, thought to myself, well, if they don't come back in a little while, I'll call the highway patrol and have them stopped. <laughs> 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 they finally find out I wasn't on the bus and they turned back, turned around, come back and got me. <laughs> how long did it take you? How long did it take you to figure out she wasn't on the bus? <laughs> I, I think I was driving. <laughs> <laughs> That's even worse. I, I, I used to do most of the driving really back before we, <laughs> till we got enough money to hire a bus driver. <laughs> but it, Didn't we, make much money, but we had a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you know, sort of, um, historically speaking, we get a lot of people writing books about the early days of country music, the early days of the Nashville sound, so on and so forth. And and it wasn't God that made the honky tonk angels. It's always got a chapter to it. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't just like you said, not just an answer song. It was um, the woman's perspective, which hadn't really been heard of right. on a very delicate subject. Right back then, you didn't yeah. Really yeah. say honky tonk angel. You know, it's uh, 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 time to go to church meetings and so on right. and so forth. So yeah. uh, it was sort of a. A combination of that, and of course, we can't leave out the fact that you had this incredible style that I think warmed to people, and yeah. people really took to your your delivery and, and the way you presented the song. Thank you. Yeah, that's at least the way I. Well, I always uh, tried to sing, you know, put feeling into the songs that, that I sang, and uh, I guess that's one reason that 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 I put them over to the people. <laughs> Like I did, I recorded How Far Is Heaven. It's about a little girl won't know how far it is heaven. She wants to go see her daddy. Is he passed away, you know. And uh, I can sing that song and look out in the audience and see people crying sometimes when I sing it. Because maybe, you know, their father's passed away and, and, and brings a lot of memories back. But it's really a Real, one of my most popular songs, that and Honky Tonk Angels. Well, I would say our podcast is off to a great start getting to talk to two legends there, uh, Johnny Wright and his wife, Kitty Wells. And Kitty, of course, was um, just a phenomenal 
phenomenal force in country music in the late 1940s, right after the war. I think things had really changed in music in general, and I think that opportunities for women were emerging, and she just plowed the field, as she once told me, just ran with it, uh, went in to do some recordings, and promoted it on the road and in radio sh uh, shows and programs all throughout the country, and of course, landing a very big hit that they just talked a little bit about. It wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angels. That was 1952. Um, fantastic start of a wonderful career that uh, wasn't mentioned too much in that clip. But um, in the 60s, she sort of reinvented herself a little bit with some gospel music and uh, recording hymns and things like that. It was uh, just an amazing thing. It's also a fun little side note, I don't know if you know, but of all the great musicians that have come out of Nashville, as far as country music goes, she's one of the only ones who was actually born in the city of Nashville. Kind of funny. Uh, and Johnny, uh, they met when she was 18 years old, and he had a large career there as Johnny and Jack, as mentioned. And I remember that uh, song that came out in 1954. Of course, I wasn't around for that, but I know the song, uh, Good Night, Sweetheart, Good Night, and uh, good stuff. Meeting them was a, a real highlight for me, and I'm glad we could share that interview. I've always felt very proud of the fact that we have preserved some of Kitty's uh, stories in our collection. And an interesting side note, as I was leaving their home and she wished me well, I told her I was going to go to the Country Music Hall of Fame. And she says, oh, be sure to do me a favor when you get there. And I said, what's that? And she said, go and find my plaque in the rotunda where all of the Hall of Fame plaques are um, and rub my nose. Because if you rub the nose of uh, bronze and brass and things like that, it becomes more shiny. And she wanted hers to be the shiniest nose in the rotunda. And I didn't have to do anything. Of course, I still did it. But it's, her nose is very shiny. So she's told other people to do that. <laughs> so when I brought Mike out there, Mike, do you remember that? I, uh, I asked you to touch her nose, too. It's sort of our tradition now. So... Uh, that's my story about the great Kitty Wells. Okay, so up next, as we continue our episode on the iconic country artists, one of the great uh, singers of all time, Charlie Pride, was able uh, to sit down with us during a uh, NAM show in Nashville a couple of years ago. And wow, what a great delight that was. It was so funny. Uh, behind us during the interview were about... 15 people who just stood there to watch and listen. And we don't usually have an audience for uh, interviews, but we sure did that day. And that was really, really fun. You know, Charlie was uh, born in 1934 down in uh, Sledge, Mississippi, uh, one of 11 kids and uh, always had a love for baseball. In fact, in 1952, he actually pitched for the Memphis Red Sox. Uh, what's interesting is at that time, African-American players uh, could not play in the major leagues because of segregation. And so uh, not to be deterred, they started their own league. And uh, the Memphis Red Sox were, were among the teams uh, in that league. And uh, Charlie 
was uh, just a fantastic pitcher. Luckily for us, he also had an opportunity to record some music. So along the way, he recorded some great hits. One of my favorites is All I Have to Offer You is Me. And of course, his big hit from 1971, Kiss an Angel Good Morning. So um, we're going to get into that in just a second. But first, uh, Mike, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on Charlie. Yeah, I was there in Nashville among the many people that were watching his interview take place. And it was just so great. Um, he was a really nice guy. He hung out with us for about an hour, which was surprising. Um, and he talked a lot about baseball, a lot more than I thought he would, which was cool because I really like baseball and it was fun to see a different side of the interviews than we usually see. Um, but he also talked a lot about his music career and that's what we're going to hear now. Um, Charlie's going to talk about how he got into country music and what drew him to it. What was the draw to country music that you enjoyed? Why did you pick that instead of like a rock and roll well, or a rhythm and blues thing? My dad bought a Philco radio and he he had, he was the only one that turned the knobs. Yeah. Bill Monroe and his bluegrass boys was his favorite singer. Yeah. And then I would hear all of the other, Leroy Acuff, Ernest Tubb, all the rest. I remember, uh, so you, every, and I liked all of them because a lot of them had big hits, you know. My Roy Acuff had uh, Great Speckled Bird. He had uh, Wreck on the Highway. Uh, uh, let me give you a little. In my hometown of Sledge, Mississippi, I had never seen a TV. This was a, a restaurant that served both white and black, right? Who were colored then? Thought I'd do it that way. So, so, but it was, and he would wait, the waiter would wait on you, turn, pay, wait on me, and if you were on the other side, but I could throw a little macho and hit you. <laughs> it was just, you know, segregated. Up on the little mantelet was a TV. The first person I saw on that TV, howdy, all your friends and neighbors, join us in our Prince Albert show, tune up your five string band, you hang up your fiddle and your bow, roll back the rugs on the floor, light up your old car pipe, cause everyone wanna have some fun at the grand old operator. <laughs> that was Cupid, uh, Kirby, uh, Waswald, the real name was Kirby. You see, so people would come, well, did you ever listen to any other music? Yes. But that's the music I decided I wanted to sing. But I see, I tell people that I'm, it's, to me it's not so strange because as a staunch American, there's not but three ingredients in American music that I believe exist that makes all make up all of the music in America. Country, gospel, and the blues. Not necessarily in that order, but country, gospel, and the blues. And I think I can do all three of those justice if I want to sing it. So it's sort of similar to what people ask uh, me, they'll say, Charlie, you must have had it hard. I said, no. I have not had one iota of hoot calls from any of my shows. Uh-oh. I said, you give me that I can't believe you got to be lying. Look. So I give them my I give them all of my uh, success, all my accomplishments, and all. Star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame between Gladys Knight and Leonard Bernstein. So sometimes they'll give you a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and put it over in your little little palm tree over off the side of the street, and you <laughs> never ever see it. Yeah. So, and after three Grammys, 
second on Lenny Elvis Presley that sold the most records on RCA. I'm just getting down. And I said, in the Grand Ole Opry now? now? Now, again, I have to explain that even now because I didn't join the opera till 1993. Now, on my, they have a, given me a, they've given me a, a marker in my hometown between Memphis and Tutwiler, Mississippi, which is about 20 miles below my hometown on Highway 3, the Charlie Pride Highway during the legislature, about 20-some years ago. Then they put the marker in there. Now, on the marker going towards Memphis, see, I talk tangential, but I always come back to their point. So, on the way back to Memphis, they got Ernest Sub bringing me on 1967, January 1st. He's on the right corner of that marker. Right under him to the left is Jack Clement and I, the guy that produced all those songs of mine. Right up above that is me at 11 years old between my mom and my dad, the pictures. Now going down, it'll say, born to a sharecropper, blah, 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 all, all the explanation. Now, here's the deal about that. Man, you must have had it hard. I said, no. Not one iota hoot call. So when I tell them and give them all of those successes and all those accomplishments, now when we come down to why you didn't join the Opry, I had a standing invitation to do the Opry from 1967, January 1st, from the time that, which he's on that marker, Ernest Earl bringing me on the, bringing me on the Opry. So now here's what I had. I had a manager, one and only manager I ever had. Here's what he said to me. He said, Charlie, you can join the opera. He said, but they have a criteria. He said, he said, Charlie, they pay $8 a song on the opera. He said, now, the criteria is 50, out of 52 Saturdays, they want 26 of those for the opera. He said, now, I don't believe we want to do that. So I said, that's, Saturdays is one of the biggest time we can make that money, make our money. I didn't argue with him one bit between $8 a song and so about 1993, my wife said to me, they don't have no criteria now. She says, you're going to join the Opry. But people thought, so, man, it's about time. They first, they thought it was the pigment, see? That, so I had to explain that, you see. So I, we got that. I think we got That's the way that came out. <laughs> what was it like working with Chet Atkins? Well, I always was awed of him, uh, Eric, uh, even before he passed away. I. Uh, I, and I, I sometimes think, why was I so awed, you know, of Chet Atkins? But I was. And I think it made him uncomfortable by me being that way. He he was so quiet and gentle, you know, and all. And, and he loved my wife. I, I think he loved me too, but he liked me at least. He yeah. <laughs> but, but I just, I mean, it's just something, you know. And, and I guess it may have been, he was the one that got me on RCA, you know, and Maybe a couple with, with all of that, uh, it's just something, that's just the way, I thought he was one beautiful fella. In fact, when we was having trouble with my, my, my ex-manager and I, when we broke up, you know, he says, because he was saying, he was eating me alive, you know, he said, why don't you go, this is Chet, why don't you go home, turn your things over to your lawyer and you'll work it out that way. He said, you eating yourself alive, trying to, because I didn't, I didn't want to break up and I didn't want to, I'm caught between, you know, all that, what, what, about 11 years in, you know, we'd been together. But 
I loved him. And the last time we, my wife and I went to see him, he, I remember him saying, he said, hi, Rosine. He said, you still look pretty. And I remember, that's exactly what he said to, about my wife, you know, and, and we went to see him before he passed away. But, but I think he was, I got a thing, I don't think, he, he got me on RCA and I, I still love him for that, especially not just for that, but just because of who he, nice guy he was. When it came time to record, who, did you have a lot of input as to what songs you were going to sing? Or was it kind of a collaboration between you and the producer? And Clement. Clement was my... Jack, Jack wrote a lot of songs. Yeah, I recorded two or three, four or five, I don't know, a bunch of his. Yeah. And, well, um, I didn't have, what Jack let me do, he would let me, he would let me tell him what I like and didn't like. The song, he picked the song. At the beginning, he picked, he picked all the songs. And, uh, in fact, when I came, I was given seven songs to go down to my, I was on vacation with my mother-in-law. And he said, work them up and send them back to here, to Nashville. So I worked them up, but I didn't send them back. I brought them back. I drove back up here and, uh, went upstairs. Uh, see, it's two, People named Jack was very instrumental in my career. Jack Clement and Jack Johnson. So I have to say, Johnson and and I went up to Clement's office and played the song that I'd worked up. And I, I used to remember all seven of them, but I can remember. Let's see, I had take that night train to Memphis, or was it Morbash Cannonball? Either one of those. And then the others was uh, just between you and me, Snake's Crawling Night, Atlantic Coastal Line. That's four or five, but it was seven that they gave me. Now. So I drove back up upstairs and he said, go ahead and sing. Uh, no, he put the, the uh, tape on and listened to what I had worked up. Uh, and then he said, okay. So he took his guitar. He said, come on. Let's sing. I think he, he was wondering if that was me, I guess, <laughs> singing on the tape. So he took the guitar and he played. And he looked at, he says, John? He says, talk to Johnson. He says, Johnson, I think... He's ready to go and record. He had a session set for himself, set for himself. He said, could you do uh, two songs in three hours? I can do it in two and one. <laughs> I, hadn't been in, I hadn't been in a recording studio but one time in my life. So we go in and we cut Snake's Crawling Night and Atlantic Coastal Line. So we back now to, or catch yet, see, tangential all the way back around the way I'm trying to get, he, he said, Chet, what'd you do with that dub I gave you that colored boy? So, so that, that's where that came. So that's when we cut that for that colored boy. That song. Now, for a week, we done already went through that. Of course, he asked Chet how long was he going to do anything. He took it to RCA. So that's the way that came about. The song of, of, of me trying to explain to you, Jack, let me. But I said to Jack, they sent it all, all of the chat, taking it out, get me on RCA, sending it all out to the, all to the DJs and all. Here's what happened. When we got to just between you and me, I said, when we recorded it, I said, that's what I want to be for my single. Jack Clemens said, no, ain't going to be your single. Now, he said, Jack says, it's going to be the snake's crawling night. Now, the snake's crawling night is about my wife 
somebody sneaking around, leaving the house. I said, it's just between you and me. It's a love song. We don't want you singing love song. Because just thinking, now watch this. The old hometown looks the same as I step down from the train. Let her meet me at my mom and papa. Down the road I look and there runs Mary. Have gold, have gold. Clips like cherry. It's good to touch. He said, we don't have you singing no love songs here. So all of these are things, you see, when I did the inter interviews like this, they didn't realize that there was a part of. Now, I'll go and clap this off by this way. When Snakes Crawl at Night was sent out to all the DJs, the producers on that Snakes Crawl at Night was Ferg, uh, Felton Jarvis, that, that produced uh, Elvis, Bob Ferguson, Jack Clement, and Chet Atkins. People walk up to me, they say, did it take four people to produce you? I said, no. I said, Chet said he wanted to make sure that there was no mistake. They didn't want the people up, you know, when they get it at the radio station, there was some hoax or something, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, the same thing. He said, well, they know they didn't put no, they didn't put his picture on the cover of his album. But he did. They did. But that's the thing that happened up. When they said out there, we're going to still release it and let the voice and the record take care of itself. Now, Country Charlie Pratt on my first album. They said, why you take Ch Country Charlie Pratt off your album? I said, I didn't put it on there either. <laughs> I said, again, it was Mr. Chet Atkins and RCA. They wanted to make sure that when it got out there, because of these pigmentation, they didn't want to make, they didn't want people to think it was a hoax. So that was uh, the iconic Charlie Pride uh, talking about his just amazing career and a lot of barriers that he broke in both, I would say, baseball and music. Um, and just, uh, just some great stories there. And you could really see the love that he has for country music. And there was no other option for him besides country music. Uh, but coming up next, we're going to hear from uh, Marty Stewart, who is an icon, again, hence the title of, of this podcast. <laughs> um, but he's he's been around in the music industry for almost his entire life, uh, which he will get into a little bit. Uh, but we figured also, why not hear an iconic country musician talk about other iconic country musicians? So he's going to talk a little bit about the uh, National A-Team as well and go into some of those uh, the details of, of who was in that. And he tries to list them all, but I think he forgets a few. So no offense to anybody. <laughs> so here's Marty Stewart talking about his passion for music, his first instrument, the A-Team, and Johnny Cash. Marty, thank you so much for taking time. My us. pleasure, my pleasure. One of the things I'd love to talk a little bit about is your own passion for music and how you saw that develop. Did you have music in your house when you were a kid? The first uh, memory I have on this earth is being in my mama's arms. I remember the kind of fabric that was on her dress. I remember crying. And um, I brought that up to her later. I didn't know why I was crying. It was the sound of the church bells coming across the, the air, the gentle southern breeze down in my hometown of Philadelphia, Mississippi. And the second memory I have on this earth, this is the truth, uh, is crying again at the sound of music. We were standing on the corner watching, there was like some little tired flea bit circus that came through our hometown. And the high school band preceded them as they, you know, took those tired tigers and elephants through town. I remember standing on the corner when the high school band came by the power of the music, just the sound of the music. It just over, it overtook me and it, it touched my heart and I just remember crying. So honestly, that's the first two sounds uh, I remember on this earth. And uh, 
our house was filled with music. But it was interesting because my uh, daddy loved string band music. My grandpa Stuart was a scratchy kind of old-time Mississippi fiddle player. And my mother played a little bit of piano and she, you know, sang songs at church. And um, so she liked country music and southern gospel music. And my dad loved, you know, bluegrass and string band music, which is kind of unusual in rural Mississippi at that time because there wasn't that much of it down there. But music was just everywhere. What was the first instrument you picked up? Guitar. Guitar. And um, the other thing that fed the music at our house was our local radio station, WHOC, still on the air. There was a thousand watts of pure pleasure. And there was a local visionary named Mr. Howard Cole who went on the air in the 1940s with that radio station. And um, the, the way the station worked is they signed on in the morning with country music. And then at the noon hour, then they played an hour of Southern gospel music. And the afternoon was top 40 in rock and roll. Late afternoon was soul, and they signed off with easy listening and classical music. So I thought everybody's radio station did that. And I was a sponge, and I loved every bit of it. But, you know, the thing that touched my heart the, the most was country music, and it drove me to my guitar. You know, I wanted a guitar. I mean, That's awesome. You know how you got your first one? Well, the first one was just a, like a little Mickey Mouse wind-up guitar, and, the, and my neighbor gave me a little cardboard cowboy guitar. But the first serious guitar I got when I was nine, my dad uh, traded somebody at the factory he worked for. It, it was um, an old Craftsman brand, I think, which was made by Sears Roebuck, I think. And I uh, started my first band when I was nine, and that called for a Tysco Del Rey guitar. And then I started hearing the music that came out of California like, uh, you know, Johnny Cash and Luther Perkins and Merle Haggard and Roy Nichols and Buck Owens and Don Rich and that sound, that sound, that sound. It was that California sound, and I thought, what is it? And the answer came, it was a Fender guitar. So I think I got my first Fender when I was about 12. Cut yards to get it. <laughs> That's awesome. Were, were there music stores in around your neighborhood? There was uh, the place you could find music paraphernalia in Philadelphia, Mississippi is a uh, Hamill Drugstore had a, a magazine rack, and it carried, you know, country song roundup and uh, magazines that pertained to, you know, the stars of the day. Um, there was a record store at the, at the Morgan and Lindsay Dime, Five and Dime store. They had a record rack. And uh, the instruments, the only instruments available in that town was at Turner Hardware Store. And they had, you know, kind of some off-brand instruments hanging on the wall. But as far as I was concerned, they were the finest instruments in the world because that's where I could go and explore and touch and, you know, just be hands-on about it. They let you play them? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, they knew I was the kid every day after school that I could possibly get up there. That's where I went. Is that where you got the uh, the Strat? The Strat? Yeah, the Fender. My first Fender? My first Fender was a little Fender Mustang. Oh, okay. And I bought it from, I think, my cousin. <laughs> and uh, then I upgraded, and I knew I needed a better guitar. And... 30 or 40 miles up the road was a little town called Kosciuszko, Mississippi. And they had a proper music store. And so my mom and dad took me up there one, one Saturday with the understanding that I could buy any guitar on that wall. But I had to cut yards to help pay for it. They fronted me the money, and uh, I had to cut yards to pay for it. And I went up there to buy a Fender Telecaster, and I got weak in the knees when I saw a Fender Jaguar because it had more knobs. <laughs> and I still don't know how to work that guitar. But that's the one I went for. <laughs> Bronze, anyhow. <laughs> That's awesome. Could have had a telly. <laughs> Let's 
Another little side kick to what I'm trying to archive is some of the uh, the A team, some of those studio musicians, some of which I know you've known. Uh, Ray Eddington is one guy that I know actually looks kind of close to you. I think. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to get your thoughts about those guys and and what they mean to you as a as a young one listening to them. Well, there's been a film now about the Wrecking Crew in L.A. And there's been a film about the Swampers and Muscle Shoals and the guys up in, that uh, made, you know, Phil Spector records. But it's time, way past time, in my opinion, that, it, that perhaps a film, you need to do this, uh, uh, concerning the A-Team in Nashville. Uh, the studio system in Nashville during the, you know, especially the 60s and into the 70s, was not unlike in, in similar ways to the old Hollywood movie system, you know. And my wife, Connie Smith, uh, was a part of that system. She was on RCA Victor Records and later Columbia Records, and I think she's done 52 albums, 53, something like that so far, and probably 49 of those were inside of that system. But there's one thing I know about those players, and basically I'm talking about... Um, Pig Robbins and Grady Martin and um, Junior Husky or Bob Moore, uh, help me out here, Ray Eddington and uh, Buddy, Harmon. Buddy Harmon, thank you. And all of those guys, Lloyd Green, you know, Weldon Myrick, Hal Rugg, you know, just that whole, Charlie McCoy, all of those people, and I'm leaving some of my pals out because I can't think of them, but the thing that was so genius about those guys is that they were, were chameleons. In the sense, and you could always listen, if you listen to those records, you could tell the artist that they were just punching the clock on and doing their best work. But at the same time, you could tell the artist they were really into and really behind. And my wife, Connie, was one of those. George Jones and Tammy Wynette come to mind. Charlie Pride, Waylon, those guys. I mean, they played for those guys. Those boys and their genius was they could go to any artist and give them a sonic identity. You know, Wayne Moss gave, you know, like, uh, Only Daddy. You know, they had, and Pig, Pig Robbins was the magician in that band. We've used him so much. I said, getting on Pig is like getting on Dope. Once you start playing with him, you can't do without him. And Mick, Conley, and I have talked about it so many times. He's one of those guys that you think he's not doing much, but take him out of the track and see what happens. The hole comes in this big. But the A-Team, they made classic records that have stood the test of time, that are the standard-bearing records of Nashville, that are the empowering records that any trend can live on top of. And they're elegant. They were classy country boys that had their own language, they had their own you know, chord system. They just had their own thing going, and it gave Nashville something to be very proud of. And you're right, you hear them, and that's the cool thing about those studio musicians, and I think maybe the same could be true with the Wrecking Crew, too. Do you hear them and you know that's, you know, like hearing Scotty Moore with Elvis, you know, that's that. That's and right. Same with Pig. Well, another, you know, we left out Harold Bradley, and we left out Floyd Kramer, and, you know, we're going to keep leaving out people that, uh, that's just not, it's by mistake. But another thing that needs to be said about the A-Team is where they worked. Studio B in Nashville was a part, as much a part of that sound as anybody. Chet, come on, Chet Atkins. Um, and the old Columbia studio, those two studios especially, there, there was just a sonic quality, kind of like Capitol in L.A. That, that was, it, it enhanced whatever was going on. 
And we we, we made a record at uh, Studio B called Ghost Train, the Studio B Sessions. And we studied it, Mick and I and the band, we went down and studied that room. And we tried to get our heads around what had gone on before there and how to unlock that room. Because it's mostly a classroom now. But it's a building that was built for like 30-something thousand dollars, just block. And there is no reason, a rhyme or reason, you could pay a, you know, a, a million dollars and still not find that sound ever again. It just happened. It was just a, the beauty of the magic of the building. You know? So it was a much, as much a part of the A-Team as anybody. So two other things I'd love to cover with you. I know you got a ton of stuff going on, so I really appreciate you spending time with us. One, I'd love to hear a favorite Johnny Cash story. Uh, particularly anything related to the setup that you played when you played with him or anything that comes to mind regarding the gear? Well, uh, the Johnny Cash sound is so deceptive because everybody thinks they can play like Luther Perkins or everybody thinks they can play like W.S. Holland and Marshall Grant. But I don't think it's been done right since the three of them got behind John and, and played. Uh, it was a once-in-a-lifetime thing. It was, again, the word elegant. It was divinely Southern, yet worldly. People ask me about the fabulous superlatives. I said, I was not smart enough to put this band together. It's a divinely ordered band. And I don't think Johnny Cash could have planned him and Luther Perkins and Marshall Grant and W.S. Holland colliding. It just happened. And, and Marshall said it so good. He says, we got together to practice and we never got any better than we were the first night. He said, because that's all we knew how to do. But thank God that's all they knew how to do because it changed my life and it changed a whole lot of people's lives. Uh, and the beauty, the, the, the one song that comes to mind is that Connie and I live next door to John and June in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And across uh, the pasture, from the cash home is the little cash cabin studio where so many recordings were done, especially toward the end of his life. And he had been working on this song called uh, When the Man Comes Around. He worked on it a long time. And he ran it down for us, and I said, will you give me 10 minutes? I'll be right back. And I went to my warehouse and got uh, a guitar that belonged to Luther Perkins. And I brought it back, and I said, now let's play. And it was just me and John, I think, maybe an acoustic guitar player, and Dave Rowe playing bass. And what, what appealed to me about that latter-day recording was it truly was his, his heart at that time. But it was the last time that anything that really resembled that Tennessee 2 sound came around. And I wanted Luther's guitar to be a part of it. And we played the song, and I kept my eyes closed the whole time. And when we were through, I remember looking up, and I, he said, What do you think? I said, That is divinely strange just like it all was supposed to be. And I remember we, we finished the session. I went home and Connie had lunch and I said, I think John just to, wrote his I'm getting ready to leave this world song, but he wrapped it in that old original sound. And that was really a special thing to be a part of. And it left Hendersonville like that. I think Rick Rubin took it to Hollywood and dooted it up a little bit. But that original version, boy, it was special. It was special. And as a kid who grew up with those guys as my hero, they were my Beatles. That was such a special thing to be a part of. So that was uh, Marty Stewart uh, just giving some great stories about some of his opinions of the, of the country music uh, players. And just, I mean, he's been around, like I said before, 
for so long in the country music industry and he knows everybody and he has just some of the most fantastic stories uh, that I could probably listen to all the time, <laughs> just constantly. Uh, but it was a great one at the end there with Johnny Cash, really, really cool little insight on, on, on that. Uh, that was pretty great. Well, you bring up a very good point. I think one of the very common characteristics that we have found in country performers is the respect that they have for each other and for those who have come before them. And I can't think of one interview where they haven't been talking about their heroes in a very um, formal ma- manner almost, you know, a very reverent and uh, humbled you know, being in the same company as some of their heroes and continuing the traditions is very, very interesting to me. Um, and along those same lines is a gentleman who's coming up next in our podcast, and that is Ricky Skaggs, who, of course, was uh, very much involved with the... Um, the rebirth, really, of bluegrass music and the revitalization of that with his uh, hit Country Boy that actually included that uh, video, if you remember, included uh, a cameo by Mr. Bill Monroe, the founder of bluegrass music, uh, certainly a hero of his. And I think he nodded that several times during his career. So, um I'm really excited that we have the opportunity to add to our iconic country performer podcast. Here is Ricky Skaggs. One thing is very clear in your, in your uh, career is your passion for music. And I wonder, mm-hmm. did you have a lot of music in your home growing up? Our, our home was full of music. My dad played guitar. My mother sang, wrote songs. Um, you know, my siblings didn't really play that much, you know, but... Uh, we always had people over at our house on the weekends. My 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 dad, when he'd come in from work, uh, he was a welder, and so he traveled, you know, through the week, you know, to to get the best jobs. You kind of had to leave Eastern Kentucky to to find the best paying jobs, and uh, so he may work in Ohio or work in you know West Virginia or somewhere like that, where he had to drive, you know, six five or six hours, you know, and back back in those days on two lane roads that that took a lot of time to get to get home but he'd come in usually real early on saturday morning and then we'd spend saturday in, in a part of sunday and after church a lot of times he'd go home or go go back to work uh, you know to be ready to work the next week somewhere but but we always had music going on you know we'd we'd have uh, we'd have uh, you know a lot of neighbors a lot of friends uh, up in our house and we'd uh, We'd have music, and it was, a, you know, it was a great way to grow up being around a lot of musicians that, uh, you know, that could play better than you, or could, you know, where you could sit there and actually learn something and listen, you know, to, to others play and sing. Hmm. Now, did you hear bluegrass at an early age? Well, you know, I did. I mean, I heard bluegrass, but you know, in those days, we didn't really call it bluegrass. You know, we bluegrass really didn't get the the name. Uh, coined till probably, um, you know, mid-60s. I mean, you know, bluegrass festivals, you know, and bluegrass music, you know. Uh, you know, Bill Monroe's music was, uh, was. I'm not sure that they, they called it bluegrass music, uh, you know. I mean, his, his band name was the Bluegrass Boys, and, of course, Kentucky is called, referred to as the Bluegrass State. But, uh, you know, when I was growing up and listening to, you know, radio stations, uh, WSM, WCKY in Cincinnati, you know, a lot of, you know, stations around the country that would play 
hillbilly music, you know. They would play Bill Monroe, they'd play the Stanley Brothers, they'd play Flat and Scruggs, but then they'd play George Jones and Patsy Cline and, uh, you know, Red Savine and different singers like that along on the same radio stations, you know. And so he didn't have this, you know, uh, this difference, you know. You didn't have, you know, bluegrass music or that style music being played over there on that station and then this playing on this station. I mean, it was it was kind of a, it was kind of gumbo, you know, and I loved that. You know, I loved being able to hear all kinds of, uh, you know, real rootsy music. I mean, you'd hear really rootsy music like, you know, Molly O'Day and, and uh, you know, groups like the, the the Bales Brothers that was very, very old-time sounding, you know, and, and uh and then you'd hear contemporaries, Patsy Cline and, you know, and, and uh, Ray Price, Buck Owens, people like that, you know, on the same stations, which I thought was great. You know, and I wish wish radio was more like that today, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What was your first instrument? My dad bought me a mandolin when I was five. Uh, he brought it in from work. Uh, I woke up to this little mandolin about this big and uh it was laying in my bed you know and i woke up and grabbed it and it was my first feeling of wood and steel together you know i mean just having you know having that in my hand and, and uh you know that's that's 50 years ago i mean uh, i'll be 56 in july so uh you know that's been 50 years ago that i got my first mandolin so i'd better know how to play it by now you know or i ought to quit <laughs> So tell me the the sort of things that you'd play your mandolin as a as a kid around the house and stuff like that. We'd play in church. We'd play at home. We'd play at the grocery store. Uh, you know, there was a place um, called Butler's Grocery Store, and there was a you know like a pop case that you know that had uh, it was either knee high or could have been a Coca Cola case. But but anyway, back in those days, they had. Uh, uh, they'd put ice inside a big, big box, and they'd just stick drinks on the other end down there. So this ice would keep the refrigeration inside, keep it cold, you know. And uh, so they'd set me up on top of this pop case, you know, and I'd because uh, I could be up pretty high and be play, set, sitting down playing the mandolin, and my dad could just kind of stand there and play the guitar, you know. So. I played at the grocery store quite a bit, and you know, and uh, and like I said, and at church on Sundays, you know. But uh, most of my playing was was at home. Now there was times that we'd go out, and uh, my dad would let me enter a, a talent contest, you know, in Huntington, West Virginia, or Ashland, Kentucky, or Paintsville, Kentucky, some some of the bigger little towns around where I was from. Hmm. And I would win exciting. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember I won. Uh, Won fifty silver dollars one time. Boy, I'd like to have those silver dollars back now. That'd be that'd be some nice loot. But uh, I'm sure I sold them, traded them in, lost them. Who who knows what happened to them? And uh, I won a transistor radio one year, and that was a pretty cool thing. And uh, I remember coming home and you know getting in my bed, you know, late at night, and and I would I would you know turn that little transistor radio on to like it, and I was hearing all kinds of music. I was hearing. You know, music from Fort Wayne, Indiana, you know, where they were playing a lot of soul music, a lot of rhythm and blues, you know, and that was a whole new world to me, being from eastern Kentucky, growing up in the mountains, listening to Appalachian music, you know, and gospel and, you know, bluegrass and, and uh, old-time country and uh, old-time banjo and fiddle tunes and that kind of thing, and then hearing R&B and soul and, you know, and, and then, of course, when the Beatles came out in the 60s, that changed everything, you know, just a, a whole 
a whole invasion of sounds, you know, uh, from from England, uh, kind of invaded the U.S., which I got to say, I liked it, you know, and um, my sister was a big fan of the Beatles, you know, and, and uh, so she'd be on one end of the house, you know, playing her records and, you know, on a 45, you know, she'd get 45s of the Beatles when they first came out and, you know, and, and, uh, and my mom and dad would have Bill Monroe or the Stanley Brothers or Jimmy Rogers or something like that going on in another part of the house, you know, and a lot of times I would kind of stand in the middle, you know, and I'd, you know, I would get, get it from both sides. And, and what was cool about it is I, I could hear how both of those kinds of music had similar roots and how that they could really, you know, work together. And I think, just because of you know maybe the way my mind hears music, I, I just don't hear that. Uh, well, that can't work with this because that's this kind of music, or you know that's you know traditional mountain bluegrass music. You wouldn't ever want to put that on with something else. You know that's so. Uh, you know the sacredness of music. I mean, I, I love I, I love and admire and appreciate tradition, as you well know, but. Uh, uh, I also love making musical gumbos, you know, and I think it's a that's a, that's what we've done with this new record that we're that we're mastering on working on today. Uh, uh, album is called, you know, of all of all names, Mosaic, you know, and uh, it's a, it's a you know it's a spiritual record, a very sacred a sacred album, but uh, it has uh, it has sounds from everywhere, you know. Uh, we have drums, you know. We we call it, uh, you know, drums drums from the Middle East, and uh, and then banjos from the from Middle Eastern Kentucky, you know. <laughs> so we've got uh, it is a hodgepodge, but it's a mosaic, you know. It's uh, Peter Frampton came came in and uh, played uh, played guitar on a on a cut and just killed it. Just is absolutely wonderful. And uh, so we've we've had a lot of uh, you know Tommy Sims came in and sang some harmony with uh, with Gordon Kennedy. Uh, the, the Gordon's co-producing with me, written all the songs. So it was uh, it's really a great experience you know to to make this music really out of the, out of the box for me i mean it's uh normally especially the last 10 12 years i've really been focused on you know traditional bluegrass music you know i mean trying to trying to take traditional music and take it to another level you know and and uh, but yet keep the integrity and the honesty and the purity of the music while allowing it to grow and it's always a fine line to walk you know but uh i think we've been pretty successful with it you know over the years and and uh Really been able to, to pay honor and pay tribute to, you know, one of the Grammys that I won was for, uh, you know, for uh, honoring the fathers of bluegrass. You know, Bill Monroe and Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs was in that same band at the same time. You know, with Monroe and uh, so it was really a really a cool album to get to work on. It was a great album. I enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you. And it was, speaking of uh, Bill Monroe, I, one of the things that really impressed me about you was. Uh, when he passed away, how involved you were in his memory and in, in honoring him at that yeah. time. That must have been special for you as a fan yeah. and as a person who knew him. Yeah. Well, Mr. Monroe was always very close to me. I mean, he, he allowed me to uh, play on stage with him uh, when I was six years old. And... Um, he invited me up. Uh, you know, the, he was playing a little show in uh, real close to where I'm from in eastern Kentucky. And... and uh, uh, we got there to see him, and and uh, the neighbors in the hood started, you know, let little Ricky Skaggs get up and sing, you know. And after twenty minutes of that, I mean, I think anybody would be ready to, you know, 
either get you know get get the heckling stopped you know so uh, mr monroe said all right uh bring this little you know who's this little ricky skaggs and uh, you know let him come get him on up here or whatever you know and I don't think he knew how little Ricky Skaggs was, you know, at the time, and and uh, stage wasn't very much higher than this off the, you know, off the ground, and and uh, so he just kind of bends down and grabs me with the arm, and you know, pulls me up on stage, and and I get to play with him. So that's really, you know, what started our relationship all those years ago. I was I was six, so that would have been would have been 1960 actually, you know, and uh, played with him and. Uh, and then just kind of kept a relationship, kept a, kept a friendship. I I really didn't see him again until I was about uh, fifteen. I was playing with Ralph Stanley, and and I got to see him again. And we talked about, you know, about when I was, uh, you know, that many years ago, why, how he let me get up and play, and all that. And and uh, so when I moved to Nashville and kind of got a, a country career going here in town, uh, we became great friends because I really wanted to honor. I wanted to honor him, even with what I was doing, you know, in, in country music. I, I wanted to to bring his music forward, you know, and and because uh, I wanted my new fans that I had acquired, uh, I wanted them to know what my roots were. I wanted them to know my background, and and uh, so being able to bring him and Earl Scruggs and Ralph Stanley and you know Doc Watson and those you know monumental men in my life you know uh, uh heroes i wanted to be able to bring those forward and let people you know know them so it was a it was a great a great tribute and a great honor you know to to do that you know knowing that uh he wasn't always going to be around and i want to try to spend as much time with him, with him as i could and especially the last 10 years of his life i did get to spend you know quite quite a bit of time with him i mean we went to the same church together and and uh we'd you know, I'd go get him and take him to lunch and, you know, bring him to our house. We'd feed him. You know, he loved fried chicken. And my wife, Sharon, just does the best fried chicken in the world, as you can tell. Uh, you know, so anyway, uh, it was it was great to, to get to know a man that had really started a whole a whole genre of music, you know. And, and uh, uh, not too many men in this world, you can really say, you can point to one person and say, that's when this genre started, you know, was with Bill Monroe. I mean, he is the guy that that heard this sound, transferred what he heard to musical instruments and put together a group of guys that could play what he was hearing, you know, and keep, you know, keep training, keep pushing, keep, you know, refining to, to where the music really gelled as a sound, you know, and then uh, it really did with him. Like Louis Armstrong with jazz, I mean, really, I mean, he, you know, he, he was the guy that you can kind of point to and say, you know, that's what started, you know, American jazz, you know, that's what started bluegrass music, you know, Carter family, yeah, they st that was country music, that was that was a beginning of country music. So, you know, you can uh, you can kind of cite those people, but really get to know them and get to hold them and hug them and have bone and flesh and feel them you know i mean it's just amazing you know to to have had that opportunity to to know him as a as a close personal friend and and mentor yeah very nice yeah. i was wondering do you did you start uh, writing songs before you were recording well, you know, I'm not really a, um, what I would c call a, a real prolific songwriter. I mean, I, I, I write a lot of instrumental music and, uh, and I've written, you know, I've taken, taken songs, taken lyrics and put, you know, put uh, lyric, uh, I mean, taken, yeah, taken lyrics and put, uh, put, uh, put melodies too. But, uh, as far as, um, as sitting down and just, you know, 
carving out songs, I've just I've never either never developed the gift or I don't feel like I have the gift maybe and uh, maybe the gift is in there but I just haven't really, you know, uh give it the time that it needs. But uh um there's so many great songwriters in Nashville out there there's no uh there's no depletion of of great songs in this town. You've written some great stuff, though. I like. I love some of the instrumental oh, things. Oh, thank that you. Done. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I I love writing instrumentals, and I, I hear them from time to time. I, I'll wake up and hear hear a melody or something, and get my mandolin and start, you know, start playing it. I keep a little Sony uh, memory stick recorder in my mandolin case, just in case, so that uh, something comes out of the clear blue. You know, sometimes I wake up on the bus in the middle of the night, and I'm I'm hearing a, a tune in my head, and and I'll get up and play it for a little while. And if I don't have that memory stick recorder, man if I go back to sleep it's it's not there the next morning when I wake up so I'm glad I got the memory stick recorder so uh, I can at least chronicle what I heard you know the night before <laughs> I was going to ask you about some of your gear you uh-huh. said you were five when you got your first mandolin right. do you remember what make that was well I don't remember the name that was inside it was a it was a um, uh, a little mandolin that my dad bought me in a pawn shop. Who knows, you know what what name it was? I, I just don't remember a name on it. There was probably some name in it, you know, inside it. But it looked Italian, is very kind of ornate headstock, and but it was so tiny, you know, just a little a little box, kind of a uh, oval shaped mandolin, hmm. round hole. Yeah. And what did you progress to after that? My dad got me a Martin mandolin right after that, so. Uh, that was a pretty good mandolin. And then we traded that. I really wanted a Gibson, you know, and uh, so uh, my dad uh, was able to get me an A40, and that's the one I played on Flat and Scruggs TV show. If you can see it on YouTube, if you don't believe me, it's really it really was me with the short haircut. <laughs> and uh, but uh, that that was my that was my third mandolin was the was the Gibson, and that's actually here in the Hall of Fame in Nashville now. So uh, it's kind of cool to know that it's there and all safe thank goodness and it was safe have you ever been challenged with having to reproduce the sound you create in the studio in a live environment or have you just realized it's two different things <clears throat> well most of you know most of the stuff we do you know, i mean with the exception of this this brand new project that we're working on right now called mosaic uh, most of the stuff that we've done i've always taken you know kentucky thunder or the the my bluegrass band uh, or even my country band back in the early days, you know, we could pretty much, pretty much, uh, you know, do anything live that we could do, you know, on our records, you know, because uh, we didn't really do that that much fancy tape looping and, you know, multi-tracking and I mean, we 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 did some of that, but but uh, most of the stuff was just raw, dug in, playing and singing, you know, and and we could, you know, I had musicians that could that could uh, do that on the road. So, for the most part, we could uh, we could pretty much give the audience what they had paid fifteen dollars for back in those days to get a get a CD, you know, and uh, um, this new project would be a little harder to go out, you know, uh, and be, you know, sound exactly like what what the record sounds like. It's uh, we got. A few more instruments and a few more things in there, some synthesizers and some uh, pads and and uh, some um, you know group choral type things, you know. And but um, anyway, it's uh, you know it's always a challenge to make people happy out on the road. But uh, 
for the most part, they're they're pretty pretty happy. I'm I'm more of a concert artist than I am an entertainer anyway. You know, I'm just I just go out and play and sing and have a good time and try to make the audience relax and have fun. You know, we we just I don't swing from a rope and come out and doing that kind of stuff. So uh, I just no want I just want to play play and sing. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly, I play all acoustic uh, on the road. So I'm Mike. Uh, we have a great relationship with Sennheiser Neumann, you know, and so we we've got uh, we we've got the kind of the run of the mic cabinet, you know, of whatever we need, whatever uh, we want from uh, from Sennheiser Neumann. We you know they they give us for the road, and so we we pretty much are exclusive with their ear, in ear monitors. That was a that was a, the, a transition going from from full blown floor wedges, where stuff was coming up at your face, you know, playing and oh, yeah, everybody was just cranked and everybody was sounding good, you know, and you could feel your pant legs move and all that, you know, from from the volume, you know, but um, but we finally got to a place where uh, we would go on the road and the monitors were so bad, you know, and we just said, look, you know, we're going into in ears, kicking and screaming. We're going though, you know, cause none of us really wanted to give up the freedom of, uh, being able to hear the audience and, and, and be able to, you know, um, give up that sound of live, you know, but when we went into in-ears, our whole, you know, our life changed really. I mean, and I think for the better, I, th I think we, we could play cleaner, play faster, smoother, uh, and be more consistent night after night after night. Plus, it cleaned up the whole stage. It cleaned up not only visually, but it cl cleaned up all of the, uh, all of the, the microphone feedback and all of the phasing problems, you know, between, you know, speakers coming up right here and live mics. We had so many live mics with, uh, with six or seven guys on stage having two mics each, you know, that's 14, 15 mics, you know, on the stage. And so having that much live stuff with, with live, Floor wedges. This wasn't. It was. It was a mixing nightmare for for the house guy. Never get it loud enough without feedback. And and uh, you know when we were out with the Dixie Chicks opening for shows for them, you know they were all electric and all that. You know, well we came out just you know balls to the wall, uh, bluegrass. You know, heavy. That's what that's what they wanted us to do was to come out and play bluegrass. You know, for their audience. You know. And so we, we did, but, uh, you know, we played a lot of big arenas that it was really hard for the guy, you know, our sound guy to, to get the house up, uh, as loud as he would like to, because at that time we were still doing, uh, you know, we we're doing wedges, you know, monitors. And, uh, but man, now we can play anywhere and be as loud as we want to be. And, you know, and, uh, still got our, our little monitors right here in our ears. So we're, we, we love that. Ultimate Ears, great, uh, great company that I work with that makes incredible uh, hearing devices uh, for us on the road. That's terrific. Yeah. Well, Ricky, we are so glad to have this time with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. We really have enjoyed it. Thank you. So once again, that was Ricky Skaggs. And just a quick reminder to everyone out there listening, all of these interviews do have video that accompany them, and you can check all of those out at nam.org. That's N-A-M-M dot org slash library and you will find all of our oral history videos there.
Okay, next up on our podcast is uh, Whisperin' Bill Anderson. I think all of us wanted to talk about him. Uh, one of my favorites, for sure. I, I try not to say that too often because I've interviewed over 4,000 people, and sometimes I really want to say that about nearly all of them. Uh, but Bill is a real special guy. Uh, if you haven't um, investigated his career and played some of his music and learned about him. I hope that this will be a great introduction, um, to you because, um, the guy is just such a gentleman, uh, so respectful, so humble. And just talking to him, you think, Oh, okay. Well, he recorded a few songs until you realize, my goodness, this guy had a bunch of hit records, but he also almost secretively, wrote songs that were big hits for a lot of different artists. A uh, really neat guy. He was born in 1937 in um, Columbus, South Carolina, as I recall. And in 1963, really kind of hit the big time with his first big hit called Still. And since that time, and I think even now, he continues to mentor younger musicians. He provides songs for anybody who asks. I'm just a really great guy. So with that, we are going to listen to Whispering Bill Anderson. One of the things that's so interesting to me is where a passion for music comes from in people's lives. And I wonder for you, where, where did that get developed? Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up? You know, I've asked myself that question a lot because, no, I didn't. I did not come from a musical family at all. Um, the only thing that I've been able to come up with over the years is somehow it must have just been born in me because I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't love music. I remember at a very early age uh, wanting a record player so I could play records and listen to music. I, my mom and dad tell me that I could find the music on the radio as a kid a long time before I could tie my shoes. You know, it was just something that I just gravitated towards. I guess maybe there's some things that are just born in you. And if that's true, I think a love for music was just born in me. What was the first instrument that you played? My first and last instrument. <laughs> One and the same. I learned to play the guitar when I was, well, I say play the guitar, strum the guitar, make a few chords on it. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, I started. Uh, it took a few lessons, but mostly just kind of absorbed what I could from books and uh, watching other people play. And I just tried to learn to play just kind of enough to accompany myself, and that's about it. And, and where did the idea of songwriting come from? Did you start that as a young? The two things that I always loved, uh, well, there's three things that I always loved. I always loved sports. I always loved to write just anything. When I was in school, the English teacher would give us an assignment to write, and everybody would go, oh, and I'd say, hot dog, I get to write. So I've always loved that, and I've always loved music, and particularly country music, simple, plaintive, country music. And I was 
just fortunate enough to be able to take two of those three and combine them and make a living at it. I actually started out, I wanted to be a sports writer. And I went to school at the University of Georgia, went through journalism school there. And that was really kind of my my goal when I first went to school was uh, to, to be a sports writer. And I did some sports writing. And then I met some people that uh, they wanted to play music and we formed a little band and one thing kind of led to another. And next thing I knew I was making up songs. Although I I had been making up songs just for my own amusement ever since I was 10 or 11 years old. And it just uh, it just kind of went in that direction. And I got very lucky and wrote a song that, uh, that turned into a hit called City Lights when I was still in college and just 19 years old. And that sort of opened the doors and I kind of went down that path. And uh, here I am all these years later. <laughs> That's terrific. Well, you know, when you started, things were a lot different, especially in song plugging and getting songs published and so on. How was it for you to get that first song published? Well, I wrote letters to every music publisher I could find. Uh, I was working as a disc jockey at a little radio station in Commerce, Georgia, and wanted to get some of my songs to somebody. And being at the radio station, I had access to lists of music publishers and record companies and this kind of thing that we would get from various sources. And I would just sit up at night and write letters. I'd write five or six music publishers a, a day and mail them, will you listen? Will you listen? And uh, finally, a, a, a gentleman in Texas named Bob Tanner, San Antonio, had a little music company called TNT Music, stood for Tanner in Texas. And he wrote me back and uh, he said, send me your songs. And I never will forget what he wrote on there. He said, you never know where the next hit is coming from. And six months later, I had sent him City Lights, which turned out to be a number one record. So he was rather prophetic. Uh, he didn't know where the next hit was coming from. Of course, neither did I. <laughs> That's terrific. That must have been quite an encouragement for you. Well, it was because the majority of the publishers didn't even write me back. I mean, I understand that now that I'm on the other side of it. I realize how little time you really have for things like that. And here's a 19-year-old college kid writing you a letter wanting you to listen to songs. And uh, I mean, I understand why they didn't write me back. One or two would write me back, but they were like, you know, don't call me, we'll call you. And and for Mr. Tanner to, to open it uh, as wide as he did for me and then for us to have some success together. I mean, it was, it was, it was very rewarding. And as the years have gone by and I've come to realize how special it was for him to listen to those songs, uh, I, I appreciate it all that much more. Mm, that's really neat. And tell me how, when did your... Um your um, recording career began. How did that get started? Well, the songwriting really opened that door. Uh, I came to Nashville and began to make the rounds and meet various people, and I got connected with uh, a man named Buddy Killen at Tree Publishing Company, and Buddy wanted to publish my songs, and he showed some interest in me as an artist. I mean, I, I didn't make any secret about it. I, I came here as a writer and to be a writer, but I thought, you know, if I could make some records along the way, that'd be fun too, because I had done, you know, just enough radio and television and stuff around uh, home to, to kind of have the bug. And uh, so Buddy got me together with Owen Bradley, who had just taken over as the A&R man at Decca Records at that time. And uh, Owen agreed to make some records with me. He uh, he told me, I'll never will forget this. He said, uh, 
He said, son, you're not the greatest singer I ever heard, but I sure do like your songs. And if you'll write some good songs, I think we can make some records together. So I learned very early on that I wasn't a great singer, but I was able to develop a style, and Owen helped me develop that style, and uh, things just kind of went from there. It, it wasn't anything. I did not come to Nashville to be a star, not by any stretch of the imagination. I just came here because I loved the music and I wanted to write it, and the recording thing and the artist thing just kind of happened. <laughs> it was meant to be, I suppose. Well, maybe so. Yeah. Well, when you were talking about uh, developing your style and so on, and we certainly know you as sort of the, the, the whispering bell, did you develop that, or was that just your own natural way of singing? No, it's just my own natural way of, of, of doing it. Uh, Owen worked with me. I, I had written a song early in my days in Nashville called Mama Sang a Song, which was a, a narration with some uh, places in the in the narration to insert some of the old church hymns and stuff. And we recorded that. I finally got Owen let me to record it. It was the first time I ever ever talked on a record, ever tried to talk on a record. And, uh, and it was my first number one country record. And Owen said, you know, I think if we'll take that formula where you talk a little bit and sing a little bit, but get a love song instead of a, a gospel type song. He said, I think we can take that to the next level. And that's when I wrote the song Still, which uh, knocked down all the doors for me. It was the number one country record of the year in 1963 and crossed over into the pop field. And when that happened, uh, the the continuation of the talking and singing thing was some way, hey, this works, let's do it some more. And, and then uh, it just kind of developed into the, to the uh, kind of a little trademark thing. And then a comedian on my television show named Don Bowman hung the whispering bill on me and uh, it stuck. <laughs> you didn't mind it? Uh, you know, in the beginning, it kind of bothered me. I thought, well, they're making fun of me, you know. But in later years, I came to realize Bill Anderson is a very common name. There's hundreds, thousands of them in the United States. I, sometimes I'll be traveling, I'll just look in a phone book. How many Bill Andersons are in Philadelphia? How many are in Minneapolis? You know, And uh, William Anderson, Bill, there's, there's tons of them everywhere. And so the, the, the whispering Bill kind of gave me a little a little something unique, and I came to realize later on that it was a it was a blessing and not a curse. <laughs> you have such a good attitude, like, <laughs> I couldn't imagine you taking it another way. <laughs> well, it, like I said in the beginning, you know, it did. It bothered me just a little bit, but uh, uh, I learned that that uh, it, it was one of the best things that ever happened to yeah, me. Yeah, right. Good advertising. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, um, there's a couple of things I'd love to get your thoughts about. One is Owen. I mean, I never got to meet him, but uh, it was a spectacular career. He had music. Yeah. What sort of guy was he to you? It was like a second father. He really was. I could talk to Owen about anything and, and did on many, many occasions. He was just... Uh, he was a very open man. Uh, if you didn't want to know what he thought, don't ask him, because <laughs> he'd tell you. But uh, he, he gave me advice on everything from uh, my love life and my marriage and my family life uh, right down to the music. And, and, and up until, you know, till, until he got sick there at the end, I, I could still go to Owen at any time in his little office long after he retired. I could just sit and 
talk with him and learn from him. I learned so much from Owen just listening. You'd go into a room with Owen Bradley and just shut up and listen and let the, this vast information just pour out. You know, just a wonderful, compassionate human being. I, I don't think there's any doubt but what my career would have never been what it's turned out to be had it not been for Owen Bradley. Well said. Yeah, that's really neat. What an impact he had. And I, I always think of him as a thinker. You know, he had all these ideas, but he knew how to put those ideas to work. And you know what? There are many things that Owen told me over the years that have stayed with me. But the one thing that has stayed with me more than anything was I was doing a record session one night and, and the musicians, that we were, we were trying to get something too fancy, a little too complicated. We, we went beyond where we should have gone with it. And Owen realized it and he left the control room. He came out in the studio. He said, boys, let me tell you something. He said, Baskin Robbins makes 31 flavors of ice cream and vanilla still outsells them all. And he turned around and went back in the room. He didn't have to say anything else. He didn't have to come out and say, hey, tone it down. You know, all he said was vanilla outsells all the other flavors of ice cream. We knew what he meant. Smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Well, you know, even before still, I think a lot of people may not know that you were greatly recognized. You were already a member of the Grand Ole Opry before that. And... Uh, and that was a big deal, wasn't it? I joined the Grand Ole Opry in 1961 off the strength of a song called Po' Folks, which I had out that was not a number one record in the charts. It was uh, top ten. I don't know how, maybe it went to two or three. I don't remember. But um, I was doing Po' Folks a lot uh, on my tours. And, and when I would guest on the Opry, I would do it. And nearly every time I'd sing it, we'd get an encore, sometimes two or three encores. And so uh, Ott Devine was the manager of the Opry at that time, and he invited me to join. And uh, wow, what a ride that's been. I bet. You're still playing out there, aren't you? In fact, as we're doing this, the, the day we're doing this in, two, in uh, July of 2009, tonight will mark my 48th anniversary as an Opry member. Wow. So two more, I'll hit the big 5 and uh, Great. <laughs> what I'll do from there. <laughs> How are you going to top that? Uh, not. <laughs> and I was hoping to get your thoughts about uh, still... Um, how that came about, what, what were your thoughts about writing that song, and do you have any particular favorite verse or, or combination <laughs> of words in there that you like? No, I think still is an illustration of what Owen said about vanilla outselling them all. I, I don't think, I've written songs that I thought were much more profound than still, but it touched that nerve, you know, with the people. And Owen had the idea already, as I said, from Mama Sang a Song, he said, let's take that formula and let's put it in a love song. And uh, still just happened to be the right song at the right time. That's neat. How, how did you top that? I've been trying for all these years to top that. I haven't topped it yet. But that's just the one that comes along once in a lifetime if you're lucky. You know, I mean, I had other number one records and other hits and all, but nothing, the magnitude of that, you know, as an artist. Uh, you're lucky, really, truly, if, if in your career you have one song that people 
you say Bill Anderson, somebody says still. Uh, it, it was one of those songs that just really touched a lot of nerves with a lot of people. Uh, I've, 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 I've heard from people, I continue to hear from people today who tell me how that song touched them. Uh, a soldier who was overseas and it was their song between him and his wife back home. Uh, stories that go way way beyond that. A mother that wrote me and, and told me the story of uh, of putting a son up for adoption in 1963 when that song came out. And every day for 35 years, she played the song still in hopes that she would someday get to see her son again. 35 years later, it happened. And I mean, there's stories that have just, uh, oh, that have just been so, so touching of how that song has affected so many lives. And if you get one like that in your lifetime, you're so blessed. And back then, I mean, having a crossover hit was no easy feat, I would bet. Well, that was in the days when a few country songs would cross over. Uh, Furlan Husky had had Gone. Uh, Jim Reeves had had He'll Have to Go. Farron Young had had Hello Walls. Uh, there had been some country things that, that, that did, did cross over. Uh, it, it was certainly the exception, not the rule. And I was very fortunate that still the way that Owen recorded it uh, with the violins and the strings and everything and not the real traditional country instruments, uh, I think enabled it to go a little bit beyond where a regular country song might have gone. Your songs are diverse enough, you know, they're adaptable enough that you can continue. You know, that's part of the, I think, the trick that must be tough. I was talking to Roger um, uh, Murray. Uh, Roger Murrah? Murrah, yeah, mm -hmm. thank you. And he, he, he gave me the insight that writing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is a lot different than the type of songs that people are recording now. You know, they're mm -hmm. not as, you know, high cotton and, you know, those sort of things may not work in, in this environment. Mm -hmm. and so having a songwriter who's been around for a long time probably means that they are very adaptable. Would you? Yeah, you have to stay adaptable. You have to stay flexible. You have to to stay current with, with, with what's going on, keep up with what's going on, listen to what's being recorded, listen to what's being written, uh, keep up uh, with the, the, you know, just not only the musical trends, but the sociological trends of the times, you know. Uh, I wrote a line on a song the other day about MySpace and Facebook, and I'm thinking, how did I know about that? <laughs> but you just keep up with those kinds of things, and, uh, and, and, and that's what I try to do. I try to keep a very open mind about it and stay adaptable and and working with these young these young writers and and and, and young writer artists the, the good thing about that is i kind of bring a little experience to the table when i'm there and they can come up with so i'll say no nah, that that doesn't work let's try because i've been there i've been shot down for doing what you're suggesting so let's try this or do this and then they bring to me the, uh, the 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 today element, you know, they can bring bring the, the the what's happening today type thing, you know, to me, and then the blending of the two, I think, is what is what works and what makes it successful. Yeah, absolutely, that's very interesting. Well, you the the, the key to it all, though, is uh, to me is is keeping an open mind, 
You got you, If you close your mind and say, well, that ain't the way they did it back in the 60s. Well, no, it's not. They don't build cars the way they built them in the 60s. Television doesn't look like it did in the 60s. So you, you cannot close your mind and say, well, I'm not going to do it this way because that isn't the way I've always done it. you got to say, hey, that's something new. I'll try to do it that way. What advice would you give a young songwriter? Quit. <laughs> Run. While there's time. <laughs> Run no. now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, the, the, you know, if you love it, if it's inside you, it's got to come out. So let it come out. Let it come out. But learn, if you're really serious about it, you want to do it as a career, you know, associate yourself. Get acquainted with people who do it for a living. Get acquainted with the, the way the business works, the way the publishing industry works, the way the record business works. And people say, do you have to come to Nashville? No, you don't, but you probably should, uh, at least for a while, because this is this is where it happens, especially if you're into our kind of music. It, it happens here. You, you're not going to find, uh, you, you know, if you live in a little town in Kentucky somewhere, you're probably not going to find a, a co-writer in your same hometown that's, that's the caliber that you'd find if you, you came to Nashville. So come here, knock on some doors. And uh, I had a, a college professor that used to have a great saying. He would... Uh, uh, he would would say it about three or four times a week at the beginning of his lecture in our journalism class. He would look at the class and he'd say, the cream always rises to the top. <laughs> I don't know if it does, but, you know, if, you, if you've got that talent and that ability and that desire, then go for it. Get, a, get connected to a wonderful organization called the Nashville Songwriters Association. Get connected with people like that. Find out what they've got to say. Go to workshops. Learn. Because it's not something that many people are born knowing how to do to perfection. You've, you, you, there, there's two parts to it. There's the art and the craft. Somebody may naturally be born with the art, but you've got to develop the craft. Otherwise, you, you're just spinning your wheels. Mm. Yeah. End of my sermon. I like Pass it. the collection plate. <laughs> Reach deep down. <laughs> uh, he is such a delight, like you said, uh, Dan. It, he was, I mean, such a great interview to listen to. And, and all of these um, interviews were just amazing to listen to. And like you said before, you really get that sense of the... Um, honoring of the history and of who came before them and, and how they really, uh, how those people formed who they became as performers. Uh, such a fantastic, all these fantastic stories. Um, another thing, just as a side note, if you may not know whispering Bill Anderson, but you might know Bill Anderson from the match game. So he had a funny anecdote about how people either recognize him from one or the other. And so when people go, you look familiar, and he has to ask them, from TV or from music? <laughs> and speaking of that, he was so, so gracious uh, with his time. I asked him at the end of the interview uh, if he would be so kind as to record a special message for my young son, Seth, who got up every morning to watch reruns of the match game, match game 75. And um, because Bill Anderson was on it and I told Seth, I was going to Nashville and I was going to be able to meet Mr. Bill. 
And he was so excited about it. So Bill took the time to record a special message. You know, he called him buddy and, and I'm so glad that you, uh, like to watch those shows. It was really a lot of fun for me. He got to meet a lot of people in Hollywood, you know, that kind of thing. It was really, really neat. Very, the word endearing comes to mind when I think of Bill. And every time I hear his voice, whether it's on a song or an interview or on radio, um, talking about something. He's just, it's so endearing to me that, uh, he gives of himself. He has is great respect for his profession, uh, the profession of songwriting. And, uh, it shows and there's just about everything that guy does. And I think that's why this became a very fun episode for me to record with you guys today. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, all these people that we got to uh, play are just fantastic and I think uh, deserve the title of Iconic Country Performers. And if I have time for one more plug, it'll be to plug the podcast episode that featured that segment by uh, Whispering Bill Anderson. Episode 52, titled Seth's Picks, we had Dan's son Seth on as a guest and went through some of his favorite interviews in the collection. And that's one of the most fun episodes that we have, so I really encourage you to check it out, uh, episode 52, on our website, nam.org. Um, and that'll do it for the end of this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you come back and listen to more, but that'll do it for today. You'll hear from us again in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.